Good afternoon, and welcome to yet another episode of The Work. Gina Kelly, my co-host, and I come to you regularly with deep conversations with the people who are actually moving the HR and HR technology industries. Today, we're going to talk with Jeff Hunter. Jeff is Jeff is an amazing representative of what goes on in the HR tech industry. I first met Jeff almost 30 years ago when he was running a startup called Intellimatch. Intellimatch was, as near as I could tell, about 30 years ahead of its time. And it was a, it was a uh, tool that allowed you to take structured information and do really excellent matching of people. And it was at a time when the job board industry was in its most primitive phase, Jeff nursed Intellimat through a series of uh, wonderful pivots, moved on to run recruiting for EA, uh, Dolby, and Bridgewater, which which I'm kind of curious about. And I, uh, I am too. I want to fa- talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Dig back into the past. And now Jeff runs a company he founded called Talentism. Talentism had its roots in the recruiting days at EA uh, in a blog that Jeff used to write about the nature of talent, and, and it was called Talentism, and I guess he hung on to the name. So, Jeff, it's so good to see you. How are you? It's great to see you, John. Great to see you, Gene. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so, so tell me the basics of Talentism. Let's start there. Well, uh, I don't think I can tell you the basics of talentism without just doing a a little bit of a rewind on my story, which thank you for introducing the the elements of it. Um, For a long time, I've been obsessed with this idea of what was the next wave of ideas about talent and work and technology and how those things would interplay with each other and how that would change the nature of work and more importantly, the world. Um, And so... I did a 10 year sort of loop through big companies in recruiting positions, as you said, starting in electronic arts, working in talent management there, and then Dolby and then Bridgewater, where I was head of recruiting for three years. Uh, And through that time, I was sort of obsessed with this entire notion under the guise of this question of talentism of why do so many great people fail to find their potential at work? And why does so many people who seem to not be, particularly suited for their job, seemed to do really well. Uh, and I was always, both as a, a former CEO and founder and, and current CEO and somebody who's responsible for recruiting, I was obsessed with that, with those questions. And uh, that took me on a 10-year journey to try to figure out an answer that made sense to me that was rooted in first principle and science, not in anecdote and, and past, uh, past evidence. And through those 10 years came up with the notion of an idea about why that happens and how people do find their potential in work and really came down to this concept of it's not about skills, it's about psychology and and the brain operates in a particular way in the context of work. And when we don't take that into account, especially with leaders and managers, um, we create confusion and that confusion actually ruins companies and hurts the people depend on those leaders for clarity. 
So talentism started over eight years ago now is that notion really I had no idea about what I was going to do with it other than I knew I wanted to make the change in the world that uh, I'd been writing about, as you said, since before the EA days. Uh, so it started as a consultancy because I had written all this stuff and built these frameworks and all these things and quickly pivoted into a coaching centric organization simply because as I was working with leaders through their psychological profiles and how that affected their strategy, their execution, their operations, their finances, it inevitably came back to a coaching relationship to dig into why certain mistakes were made, why they were repeated, why opportunities were missed, why certain opportunities were grabbed when other people missed them. What was it about the nature of that person I was sitting across from that would lead them either to greatness or ruin and what and would lead the people in their organization either to greatness or ruin. And so I became obsessed with this notion of coaching within that and then eventually built out uh, a business. Uh, we've worked with almost 800 companies at this point, thousands of leaders, uh, a business really grounded in helping fast growth leaders, CEOs, founders, C-suite individuals, sort of discover the inner workings of their own mind and apply it to building great businesses and building a bunch of technology as well as coaching methodologies unique in, in both respects that could help us as coaches deliver on that promise. Uh, and that's what uh, talentism is. That, that's amazing. So, so what I think about as I talk about that is one of the, one of the things that appears to be missing in management to me today is the development of good, I'll call it personnel judgment because I'm a little long in the tooth, but but the, the ability to see out into the future and to somebody's potential and harvest that that potential inside of them. We, we used to do that. as uh, It used to be a, a singular focus of management and there ceased to be a focus of management. And part of what it takes to get good at that is you have to have a lot of interactions with people. You have to have a lot of relationships so that you can start to see how people develop and how they apply. Sounds like you're in the catbird seat for that kind of thinking about stuff and that you've had a chance to see a lot of people develop. If you were going to take talentism down the road of helping develop leaders who can see in that way, what do you do? How, how would you do that? Well, at the risk of, you know, sounding sort of uh, in the cross section of intellectualism and spiritualism, what we are, what we believe is that, well, let, let's start with the first principle, every system and John, you know, you and I have talked for years about the nature of systems and what systems are like. And in fact, you once had a book club and you sent me a beautiful book about systems, uh, which I still have. Uh, so let's let's start with the premise for the for the sake of argument that every system is perfectly designed to achieve the results it gets. And then if you take a look at the results we're getting as HR leaders, as, um, as CEOs, as founders, and there's a lot of great things that happen, but mostly the human experience within work is terrible. Uh, and, and there's all sorts of data to show that. And there's also just like go spend time in a company and you can see it firsthand. And I think that that outcome isn't, uh, because, um, 
you know, there's a, a rational prioritization going on or, or like people are just too busy or whatever. I think the, our entire belief structure about what work is and how people are great at work is just sort of broken. And I think that belief structure is sort of like, hey, listen, we're not responsible. Uh, leaders and managers are not fundamentally responsible. If you want career development, if you want to understand yourself, if you want to get better at something, then take it on. It's yours. And uh, while that notion of, you know, um, radical independence may make sense in some cases, it completely ignores the underlying reality of human cognition and what humans are like, which is that all of us as a species are highly um, influenced by leaders and by managers where we exist within power structures and we are influenced by those power structures and we take an unconscious signal about what we're good at from the people who are making decisions about whether we get hired or fired, whether we get promoted or demoted, whether we get to be part of the in-group or not, whether we get to have the status of a certification or a reward in some way. We're taking a signal from that person about what we're good at. And by the way, the person who's giving us that signal is also taking a signal from someone. Everybody has a boss mm -hmm. and everybody exists within the nature of that power dynamic. And so to say to a human being, given the nature of what our species is like, hey, you're responsible for your own growth. I'll just control every factor associated with it seems to me um, either willfully ignorant or uh, it just opportunistic. Well, um, yeah, I think you have to look at where the reward systems are, though. I mean, we're rewarded for productivity. And and so many leaders, yeah, unfortunately, they do run kind of sink or swim. They have a sink or swim leadership style when it comes to career development. You, you are on your own. Um, and what you step up for gets assigned to you also, you know, so people learn not to necessarily step up or not necessarily to raise their hand because they're going to wind up with more responsibility and they might have been ill-equipped to handle what they had already. Um, I, I'm really curious, though, Jeff, I'm hearing you talk about coaching and, and it's been my I, I've, I've had coaches over the years. It's been my experience that coaching is usually delivered one on one. Are you able, is there a, a scalability element to coaching? And, and also, uh, tell me how, how someone engages with you initially. Are there assessment tests involved? And, and forgive me, I don't have the longstanding relationship that you and John enjoy. So, um, so talk to me like I'm a smart teenager, because I'm, I'm kind of coming into this for the first time. Well, sure. So it's a great question, Jean. Um, First of all, let's when we're talking about coaching, let's take a step back because it's one of those terms that's thrown around a lot, but means very different things to very different people. And so uh, when I first started building talentism, you know, eight plus years ago, I had never had a coach. I wasn't really aware of what coaching was. I wasn't uh, I had no desire to be a coach like I sort of came into it. Um, came into it raw. And the thing that I learned is I, is like people asked me to coach them and I was excited and, and interested in helping them is I wanted to step back and really understand what coaching was. And I wanted to understand how people think about coaching because I was just so new to it. And what I discovered um, in very broad sort of strokes is that there are different theories about coaching, what coaching can do. 
And uh, one of those theories is very much, I think, based in the therapeutic relationship that people typically get through um, psychotherapy, psychologists, et cetera, that kind of relationship. It doesn't have the scientific rounding that those disciplines do, but it's very much about creating a safe space where a where a human being can meet with another human being and disclose things about themselves and talk about things that are worrying them. And the, the coach is a guide on that. The coach creates a container for that and they're a guide on that process. And through that, um, you know, a lot of people really connect with that as in coaching because leadership especially is very difficult. It can feel very lonely. Work can feel very lonely. And so to have someone who is good at setting a space of safety for you to be listened to and heard can be very beneficial to you as a person figuring things out. Uh, then I think there's another sort of tradition of coaching that comes more from the sports world, which is this belief that there is a known good, a known good path, a known right way to do things. And all you need to know is the, the how to do that. And you need help to hold you accountable to practice to get there. So you see this in a lot of different skills coaching. You could have that in, um, and we hear that a lot in the marketplace. Hey, listen, I've got this great manager, but he's a terrible communicator. I've got this great leader, <laughs> yeah. but she, uh, she just isn't a people person. And so... Um, what's implied in that is when people are asking for coaching is, hey, you know what good looks like. We don't know what good looks like. Why don't you teach them what good looks like, close that skill gap, help them practice? Um, and then I'd say there's a third, a third way coaching works, which is really where talentism exists, which is most of the big things that stand in the way of us unleashing our potential don't have much to do with skills. Um, it's, that's just not how the brain works. Skills are always applied in context. Skills are always applied in a situation or a circumstance or environment that actually determines how well you'll apply that skill. And, uh, there's lots of fun experiments that have been run on this. Um, one of the most famous is a, a softball pitcher, uh, a female softball pitcher underhand pitching to some of the best major league baseball player uh, players in the world. And none of them can hit her pitches because even though the ball's bigger and it's going slower, it's coming from a different angle and there and she's closer. Mm -hmm. And so she can strike them out all day long, which of course is beautiful to behold. And it just, it's a mark the point that we don't really apply skills independent of context. Context is actually the thing we're good at. And so you, this is this has deep, profound impacts with regards to career development, hiring, the way we manage people internally is you we hire people mostly based on what their past performance has been, where did they go to school, what jobs that they held, how well did they do that? And those are very um, skill oriented or certification oriented sorts of questions we ask about a potential future hire. But as John mentioned, any hire is a bet against the future, really has very little to do with the past. It's about how you're going to perform in, in the future. And the thing that rarely is taken into account is context matters. And so you could have been great at GE and really bad at Google in the same exact job, even working for the same person. And so it's our job as a coach in, in our in the what we've created, it's our job as a coach to discover that. 
and to discover the inner workings of your mind that are largely inaccessible to you through conscious um, introspection and to discover where you shine and when you're doing your best work and where you feel most alive and you feel most connected to that work and where you feel under threat and where you feel that you're not supported or people are watching you or they're just trying to give you more work so that you, um, you know, so that you they can get away with paying less for things or whatever it is. Uh, and so when we find those patterns within people, then we can help them create both the designs for their own work, but also their career so that we can uncover um, so that we can actually test and uncover through those tests. What are you really good at in this context? What are you actually going to do that makes you feel like it did a good job and delivers value to the company and makes your manager feel like, wow, you're really on top of it. And also when are those times where you're just in the wrong place with the wrong responsibilities, working for the wrong manager. And that happens a lot because most managers are bad at their job. The Gallup poll proves that pretty consistently. (laughs) And so um, if you're depending on your manager to give you signals about what work is good and bad and what's important and unimportant and how you're valued and they're not good at their job, then you're getting a really bad signal all the time. So we help you make sense of that and then figure out where you could go instead so that you could work for somebody that makes more sense to you. Um, so wow. that's how we. That's it. a lot. That's a lot, Jeff. I, I mean, I'm hearing context comes first. Con- context, context is is perhaps the most important data that you're gathering at the onset. Is that correct? That's correct. John, your thoughts. Have you ever had a coach, John? Other than what what we do on this podcast, me beating you up periodically, <laughs> attempting to remediate you. <laughs> the, the, the best bosses I have ever had were great coaches. They were absolutely I agree. great coaches. I agree. And, yeah. and they they would take me, and you know, I've got I've got an endless supply of questions, and I've always had an endless <laughs> supply of questions. And so the bosses who were good to me would would hear my questions and um, give me the food that I needed to understand the world that I was in. And so so that was great. And then I developed this boss allergy. And so um, (laughs) Jeff is laughing. (laughs) (laughs) It's been about 30 years since I could tolerate having much of a boss. I take them. I have a portfolio of bosses who get small slices of me now. Um, because I'm allergic to that one person. So I haven't had a good coach in a very, very long time. And as I listen to Jeff talk, I think, oh, maybe I should get a coach like that. Well, uh, yeah, I'm sitting here feeling there's a lot I did not realize about this particular category. I think earlier in my career when I was on the corporate side, um, uh, coaching felt like punishment. You were mm-hmm. selected because something was wrong that they needed to either train into you or train out of you. Um, so so I'm just curious, you know, with that as a backdrop, has that is that no longer part of the picture? Have we hopefully um, evolved to the next generation of coaching? Hopefully. Uh, so it's interesting you bring that up, Gene, because I was just talking to a client yesterday and he was saying, you know, when I was first told by the, by the CEO that I needed a coach, 
I had that reaction mm-hmm. the, in the environment I grew up. You only got a coach when you're in trouble. Uh, nobody who is good at their job got a coach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Scary moment. And we primarily, not completely, but primarily, let's say 90% of our clients are very early stage, fast growth companies that then we work with until they become large companies, public, et cetera. And what we find in the marketplace today is that uh, early stage CEOs reach out to us very quickly upon founding a company to say that you're going to be an invaluable partner on this journey. Interesting. Um, and because I think, I don't think I, we have these conversations with them, the world they're, they're working in is terribly confusing. There, it's it's um, chaotic. It's uh, you know it's volatile, uncertain, uh, chaotic, and often ambiguous. Um, and so, and they have to build something. They've made commitments to their people. They've made commitments to their founder uh, to their investors. They have to build something in the midst of that chaos. And the chaos isn't a thing that exists outside of them. It exists inside of them. They have competing demands. There are things they're good at, things they're not good at, people screaming at them. And so this chaos exists inside of them. And what they realize is that they need expertise to help them continuously sort out that confusion to help them get to clarity. And that that loop of learning from confusion to clarity is the sort of driver of their success. We have a saying that the speed limit of growth of any company is the speed limit of growth of the leader of the company. Mm. Company will not grow faster than its leader can grow and adapt. And so they're starting to understand that this is no longer a remedial tool in the toolkit for problem employees, but instead mission critical to dealing with the inevitable confusion they're facing. And that in the competitive world they exist in, their ability to turn confusion into clarity productively and systematically is their defining competitive advantage. Um, And so that's more where we sit, more what we hear in the market. I, I'm fascinated by this. I can't. I'm going to to. I don't know if anyone else watches this show, but I can't help but think about a television show that uh, has been on in recent times called Billions. And I believe there was a perform, perhaps a performance coach was the role this individual was playing, but she was an integral part of the leadership team. Um, yes. And it was so important to have that that counsel, you know, every step of the way in order to support that hyper growth. I think that's a fascinating model. Um, well, if I can respond to so that show Billions is supposed to take place where I'm sitting right now, Westport, Connecticut. Um, and uh, that character's name is Wendy. And so for a long time, people called me Wendy, which I thought was wonderful gender reversal. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not seeing that, Jeff. Not yeah. that, that, but, you know, OK. Well, I'm married to a Wendy, so I feel a close affinity uh, for that name and the person. But, but that the way she modeled that actress and that performance was modeled was very much not a the skills level, but in the underlying psychological things that stand in the way of a person reaching their potential. Now, that was in a fairly Machiavellian, dog-eat-dog sort of culture, which is not something we are particularly well-suited for. Um, But that, yes, I think that's spot on is what that character was portraying is more akin to what we would be doing than a coach who's sort of like giving you space to just talk about your feelings. Yeah. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I, I'm good. I know John has other questions. I'm going to ask one more quick question. 
Do investors bring you into startup situations? Yes. Uh, I saw your head shake right away. That would be so smart of them. So that's why I asked that question. John, over to you. So, So as you're in a relationship with a company or a founder over some amount of time, you must start to tamper with their talent acquisition processes. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. How, you know, what, what, you've seen that particular cluster from a thousand different perspectives. Um, and it breaks down precisely because there's no simple way to evaluate context and the things that you can match don't matter. Um, how do, you, how do you help people over the hurdle? I mean, that's, a, that's a huge mind shift. It's a huge, I, I don't exactly understand what technology you use to understand context, but you'd have to have some sort of context equalization view. Um, uh, so, so talk about how you instrument talent technology in your clients. Well, there's a, there's a couple of things, John, as you said, like I've had the privilege of running very large recruiting organizations in very different contexts, in high tech, in licensing, in, uh, you know, financial services, alternatives. Um, and so what I've learned through all of those and a lot of failures along the way is th- like the talent market is just the worst constructed market in the world because it's a bunch of people who don't know what they want buying things from people who don't know what they have. Um, and so you, the underlying theory of like what a good market is just doesn't work in the talent market because everybody is believing things about what they want. Um, that is almost always, I would easily 95% plus of the time based on a rear view mirror view of the, uh, of what you need. Um, and it's, that's always the wrong view. So, so as human beings, basically our minds are just pattern matching machines. That's what they they are. Right. And And from an evolutionary standpoint, we have to be good at that because that's the way you detect danger before it eats you. And you got to stay alive long enough to procreate. You can't say much with any degree of confidence, but you can say, that all our ancestors, if you're listening to this, all of our ancestors succeeded in staying long, staying alive long enough to procreate. And so their brain worked for that primary mission. And they did, the brain does that through pattern matching. Um, and so what we do when we're managers and we're going to create a specification, go out to hire is we don't really think about the future. We think about the past. And we think about where we've been and think about what problems we've experienced, et cetera. And we say, okay, I'm going to need somebody to go solve those problems. That's why I'm going to make a hire. But in a fast moving organization with a lot of change, the the probability that six months from now, you'll be in the same context with the same set of problems and opportunities that you were six months ago when you started the recruiting process, the the probabilities are almost zero. So you have to, first and foremost, there has to be this way to envision the future context and what's going to be happening and how big you're going to be and where you're going to be. And all of that is an, an, act, an act of imagination. You're just not, there's no certainty to it, uh, but you have to engage in that in order to create the right sort of specification. The second thing we know is, and we've t- touched on this a little bit, is 
Um, we hire for skills and skills are rarely the things that make or break an employee. If skills are like table stakes, in other words, like I say, I, I, I frequently say skills are like breathing. If you don't do it and you don't have it, you probably won't make it. But nobody achieves excellence just because they're taking a deep breath. Um, it's it is the hygiene portion of the hire. The, the whether the person's going to be excellent or not is really about these con contextual questions and. Number one, it turns out, you would think number one in that contextual question would be the manager, and they're they're high up there, but by far number one is culture. Uh, and culture is another one of these words everybody talks about, but they mean different things. So I'll, I'll propose a definition, the definition we use, which is it's the culture is the beliefs people have about the behaviors and outcomes that will be rewarded, punished, and accepted. Um, and we use the word beliefs advisedly because the culture is not, it's a unconscious operating system. It's not the things we talk about. It's the things we witness and the things we do. It's the behaviors. It's what gets rewarded by the people in power, et cetera. And so, so, uh, it turns out that if you are a bad culture fit, not in the respect of, because I, I think there's a lot of really good conversation about culture and I'll go into that in a second, but if you're a bad culture fit, it's unlikely you're going to be able to perform well. Um, and most of the people when they're talking about culture are actually talking about people like us. That's what they're really saying, right? Like <laughs> it's code, <laughs> it's, it's code, right? It's code for like, um, what we really care about diversity, but it's a white guy culture. Um, and, and so I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, um, how really I'm talking about safety and I'm talking about how people make sense of their position and how much, um, and what they can do to win and what they can expect from their manager and their leaders in order to be able to win in that environment. And most leaders and managers, because they're human beings, don't actually know the answer to those questions. And so they just make it up as they're going along, unconsciously responding to inputs and stimulus. And then through that, systemically sort of biasing all sorts of things that then turn the system, again, which produces results, which you would expect, the system to reinforce the people already in power, as opposed to unleashing the potential of the people there. So culture becomes this thing which is code worded into, uh, you know, we're looking for people who have ownership mentality and all this bullshit, pardon my phrase, that like people talk about all the time and actually means nothing. Um, and instead fail to look at themselves in the mirror as leaders and managers and say, what am I really like? And what do I really reward? Not what do I put up on the poster in the bathroom, but like, what do I really do? And that's about their level of self-awareness and their level of acceptance. Uh, and most human beings aren't self-aware and they aren't self-accepting. So managers <laughs> falling in the category of human beings, typically great crappy cultures. Um, and so this hiring thing of like going through and saying, what do I need in the future? Who am, as I, who am I as a manager? What things, behaviors and outcomes am I really going to reward? How much attention am I really going to pay to uh, pay for that? forms the container under which you can either be good at hiring or bad at hiring. Um, and if you're willing to invest in those things, you can be good at hiring, 
not at the start, you're going to make a ton of mistakes, but you can learn well because you can diagnose back to what you were missing and all those things. It's never the candidate's fault. Another common thing I've learned about uh, having listened to lots of hiring managers tell me my department wasn't good. What I was able to over time prove is that bad hiring is because of bad hiring managers, not because of bad recruiting departments. And it's not because of bad candidates. Hiring managers who suck at their jobs spend all their time trying to figure out how to blame everybody else for their problems, when the reality is they're just not good at their jobs. And if they would just say that and ask for help, you could improve hiring pretty rapidly. And if you are if you won't say that, then you're probably going to still suck at being a hiring manager. With regards to the technology, um, the technology is still very nascent because the technology actually, our technology, I think, falls into two camps. One is personality preference, which you would like Myers-Briggs profiling, um, TDP, these kinds of profiling tests, which really are talking about psychological preferences in context without the context element. And then the other thing is sort of trying to pattern match like, okay, if this person was successful in this job and they had this pattern, like who else out there is like that? Um, Which is way better than just saying, if you went to Harvard, you're smart, Um, but it isn't uh, as good as what is needed and what is needed to be able to say, what are the essential elements of context? And then how can you get information about that? Because let's face it, most people aren't going to actually say they're manager sucked. And so I'm just looking for a manager who doesn't suck. Um, they actually have no really good language or descriptors to be able to say, here's the kind of people I've succeeded with and the kinds of people I haven't. Um, and the things the finally to say that on the personality preference tests, and there are people like Charles Handler who are just way, way better, way better at this than I am. Um, but the thing to me is I, I don't think something like Myers-Briggs tells you anything meaningful about what context you're going to succeed in and fail in. But it's a shared language, and you can have a conversation about it. Uh, It's not nothing. Uh, Just don't treat it like, you know, because I'm an INTJ, ENTPs are going to crush it with me. That's not true. But I can have an interesting conversation about what kinds like classic EI sort of differences. I like to process information internally. And I do well in context where I have the authority and control to do that. If I work for a manager who's going to demand that I extrovert every thinking process, I'm going to fail working with that person because I'm not going to feel prepared to actually disclose my inner thoughts before I work them out. Those kinds of things are interesting questions and vectors to sort of explore, um, but it's not formulaic and it doesn't actually just match because the four factors match. And you just you just opened up yeah. a vein that another whole half hours worth of conversation, if not more. This is a big can of worms for John, especially. So, <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, I'm afraid you have to come back now. You're on the hook. I'm <laughs> this has been just a wonderful conversation, Jeff. You, you and I have not met previously. I've I've enjoyed this enormously. Would you please tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you? Uh, they can write me at jeff.hunter at talentism.com. And our website is www.talentism.com. Um, it's a terrible website. 
And I hope that you realize that when you visit, but uh, we're working on it. But uh, Jeff.Hunter at Talentism.com is how you can connect. To me. Well, we're going to let you off the hook with the website because that's not your primary line of business. So that <laughs> is not. Thank you. That's well, very kind of you. <laughs> thank you so much, Jeff. And thank you to our listeners. This is the work. Thank you again.